Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here. This is the Centered From Reality podcast, and welcome to the new year. I almost wanted to say the new world, but we're not quite there yet. But yeah, it is 2024. I recommend if you guys haven't, maybe go back and listen to the episode I did on the 31st, so on New Year's Eve, with my buddy John Friesen. Had a fun time. I do wish we did it a little bit longer, but we just ran out of time. We started late, and I had the Packers game and had other people coming over, so... Yeah, we got in about 40 minutes, but always fun to talk with him. And yeah, I was just really thinking about it today on my run. I was just like, you know, this this might be one of the craziest years we, we get to experience in a while, just between the state of the world and the elections coming up. And, you know, anyways, not to be a Debbie Downer, but, and well, this isn't a politics thing, but <sighs> January, I just kind of get into some gloom in January and kind of into February as well. I just feel like after all of the excess and consumption and chaos and busyness of the holidays, you kind of get into January and you're just like, now what? And luckily, you know, I'm going to be busy. Hopefully we'll get some snow so I can start Nordic skiing, but I will be busy and, you know, I'll spend some time with friends and family and whatnot. But yeah, I just kind of get into a, a bit of a rut in January and yeah, it just it's dark and cold and there's not any real like long weekends or anything to look forward to, except for I think we have Martin Luther King Jr. Day at the end of the month, and then obviously President's Weekend into February, but still, yeah, just not my favorite time of year. March and April get nice again, so, you know, it's the way it is. We'll survive, but 2024 is going to be quite an interesting year. Now, I wanted to start by talking about a trial that is actually resuming today. Well, by the time of this recording, it's already resumed. And it's a trial in Atlanta involving Young Thug. That is Jeffrey Williams. He's an Atlanta-based artist. And basically, he stands accused of eight different counts, including racketeering and gang conspiracy. This is actually something I've been following for quite some time because there's a lot of implications, not just in the court system, but in pop culture, in the rap world. Um, Young Thug, it's, it's kind of a controversial case, I guess you could say. Because basically what's happening is they are actually looking at some of his rap lyrics and using them as evidence. The courts are using some of his lyrics as evidence. And this is something that doesn't happen too much. What I mean is it's not particularly common for courts to use lyrics to try to prove that someone like Young Thug is guilty. But in this case, they are trying to do that. And it's a pretty fascinating phenomenon that's unfolding. And I mean... Just to give an example, I mean, even they start with Young Thug's name. <laughs> he, he says it stands for truly humbled under God. And basically some of his opponents are saying that there's, you know, threatening connotations of Thug, especially with his alleged gang activity and racketeering charges and reports of drugs and violence. But then also when you look at his lyrics that, you know, that often reference drugs, gang activity, violence... It gets kind of interesting. Prosecutors do not buy that this is all a persona and they are going after him. Obviously, this is not the only evidence they have, but this is one school that they are using against him. And I just find it kind of interesting because you are seeing kind of a contrast between do rappers always have a fake persona? What are their First Amendment protections and, you know, rapping about whatever they want? And sometimes are they just actually admitting some of the things they've done in the past right on the song right in the recording, you know what I mean? And so I think this case is kind of fascinating and I'm sort of conflicted on it. And basically to put this into perspective, 
The Economist has a good piece that talks about how it is very rare in other genres for lyrics to be used as evidence against artists that are charged, say, with other offenses, usually drugs or violence. And The Economist writes here in quotes, country singers regularly belt out murder ballads. Johnny Cash, who sang about shooting a man in Reno just to watch him die, was arrested seven times, including on drug charges. But there is no record of his lyrics being used to jail him. So what it's kind of saying here is like, yeah, Johnny Cash was obviously doing some guilty activity, bad activity, but they never actually went to his lyrics as like, oh, well, he talks about killing a man in Reno, so he must have killed a man in Reno. But in this case, Young Thug, basically prosecutors are saying, well, maybe some of the things he's talking about he actually did do. And to give a little more background here, basically prosecutors are alleging that Williams, who is Young Thug, and the other co-defendants, there's five of them, they're basically saying that they're members of the Young Slime Life Gang or the YSL Gang. Now, the interesting thing here is that defense attorneys are arguing that YSL is simply the name of their record label, Young Stoner Life. Part of me thinks maybe both of those might be true in a sense because, from my understanding, there is a gang, Young Slime Life, and it is kind of ironic that Young Thug's label is Young Stoner Life, while at the same time he is rapping about activity that would be associated with a gang. The other thing that's interesting is that one of the defendants, Shannon Stilwell, was stabbed at the Fulton County Jail, and basically they scheduled recess earlier than expected, and now they picked up back again today. And now, I mean, it does get more difficult because we're looking at these main charges that are happening, you know, as the as the trial resumes today. But over the last year or two, two years, I guess you could say, he has also been held without bail in Fulton County on reprimand due to being charged with violating Georgia's RICO Act. Also, he's also been charged to a total of 56 counts of illegal substance trafficking or fire, firearm possession charges. He was also arrested alongside 27 other members of YSL on gang-related charges. And so it just seems like there's a lot wrapping up, <laughs> racking up here, sorry, if he's just saying he's playing a persona. It's not good when you're being arrested for things you're rapping about, and then you're also saying that, hey, this is a persona. But then again, I do think this is kind of, I guess this somewhat isn't a great precedent to have. Um, I wonder too, and this is just me kind of thinking out loud, I do wonder if there, if, if prosecutors maybe use this because they know jurors might be biased, either for racial reasons or just a disdain for rap or their thoughts of how rap is more taboo and more violent. I wonder if prosecutors are using the lyrics because they think they can kind of persuade the jurors that this rapper is dangerous and violent. And it just seems like the term rap music, it's different than, say, trying to quote a country song or a pop song or a jazz artist or a blues artist. Rap has connotations. I think some of that is racial bias in jurors, but also it's just why a lot of people disdain it, especially older generations kind of disdain the cultural elements of rap especially the violence and drugs and everything. But then I guess um, the New York Times also has an interesting piece that talks about how since 1950, just four trials had used non-rap lyrics or written fiction as evidence of assault or violent threats. It, it notes, though, hundreds of criminal cases have involved rap. And I think two things can be true here in this case is that first off, rap lyrics in general, especially the more modern kind of trap rap, the lyrics are pretty violent, they're sexist, they talk about drugs and violence a lot, 
And at the same time, some of the people, or actually a good amount of the people making this music, end up getting busted for doing some of the crimes that they rap about. So I think also you have to think about trap rap in general and what, and that it's kind of a dark, gritty gang type of rap that talks about drug dealing and violence. And sometimes to rap about that and have experience about that, it means you were probably involved in it, right? But then also at the same time, though, I do think that there's probably some racial bias here. Um, there is a study, where is it here? Oh, there we go. There's a study from the University of California, Irvine, UC Irvine. And basically it talks about how they've found that basically using rap in a, in a trial is an effective way to, to sway a jury. It writes here, people are more likely to consider identical lyrics to be threatening and drawn from life when they are told they come from rap rather than country music, according to the study. It also says the term rap itself can be, uh, or sorry, can awaken latent racial bias in jurors, according to Mr. Verner, one of the people working on the study. And he talks about how prosecutors seem to understand this because there's an American legal manual from 2004 that encouraged the use of rap lyrics to present def um, defendants as criminals wearing a do-rag and throwing a gang sign rather than the nicely tailored altar boy. Obviously, that's 2004, but it's not lost on me that I think just citing rap and going after rappers, it does just have a different connotation and it brings up a different response in jurors, especially white jurors, than if you talk about, you know, John Wayne or something. And so this is going to be interesting to see. I also think there are somewhat free speech ramifications here as well. It's just because both the United Kingdom and the United States are some of the only places that actually look at content and use it in trials like this. When I mean content, I mean writing, music, social media, all this stuff. So I think this could be a pretty interesting case. And we are seeing in both America and the United Kingdom that rap lyrics are being increasingly presented by prosecutors as confessions. And I think that is a slippery slope for sure. Though at the same time, of course, this is all alleged. To me, it does seem like Young Thug, I don't know, when you have 56 different arrests and you have all these RICO charges, it seems like when there's smoke in this case, there probably is some fire here especially when one of the defendants is stabbed in prison. But yeah, let me know. I mean, do you think this is a good precedent to be using lyrics as confessions or forms of evidence? I think it's kind of out, but you can let me know. Anyways, moving on, I do want to also just talk about briefly Claudine Gay. If you guys don't remember her, that was Harvard's president. She has finally resigned. She stepped down, no longer president of Harvard. I think that was effective today. At least all the articles I was reading during lunch all said today, so we're going to go with that. But anyways, she obviously, I, I have con conflicting views on this. I think it would have been easy for her to just say that calling for genocide is bad. She struggled to articulate her thoughts well. I think her intention was just to say that basically there can be students protesting Israel and saying they dislike the Jewish community or hate the Jewish community, and as long as they're just saying things and not trying to harm Jewish students physically, then they're allowed to do it. She was just basically kind of taking an academic, absolutist view on free speech. But again, she just really failed to give any solid answers on that whatsoever, and it backfired. And of course, my my question is, why would she even agree to do this when you know it's Elise Stefanik running this MAGA Republican from New York who clearly wanted to make this look good for Republicans and make these college professors look bad, right? But anyways, Gay has stepped down. 
But the interesting thing here to me is that it's more about academic misconduct. What it seems like has happened here is that basically there's all this attention ever since that lovely hearing on the Hill. And basically everyone was looking into her work more and scrutinizing her more after that hearing. And this burst of attention allowed political opponents ranging from like the Christopher Rufos to the Elise Stefanics to right-wing media. Basically it allowed them to really scrutinize her work. And basically they found that, let's just say maybe she wasn't, um, the most true or honest person during her academic years when she was writing papers and dissertations. That's a nice way of me basically saying that it looks like she did a decent amount of plagiarism. At first, Harvard did an internal study a little bit back, and they found that it looked like she just misquoted and didn't use proper footnote citations. But under more scrutiny, it looks like (laughs) it's more than just that, and she engaged in academic misconduct. And it it looked like it wasn't just inadequate citation, but it was a wide range of work, and a lot of it involved misquoting, plagiarism, not properly citing sources. And I guess, in a sense, this is a pretty damn bad look for someone leading Harvard, which, you know, sometimes Princeton will be in front of Harvard or whatnot, but in the end of the day, I mean, Harvard is kind of the academic standard and one of the most famous colleges in the world, so... It's a pretty bad look to have these accounts of plagiarism. And look, I mean, again, I think this was somewhat of a political winch hunt going after her because of the anti-Semitism or alleged anti-Semitism in the Hill hearing. But the problem is, even if the even if bad faith actors were going after her, she had enough in her history that still isn't good. And it just shows her academic integrity is not there. And look, I've... In my undergraduate years in Orange County at Chapman, and then in my grad school days in Chicago at Northwestern, I, I've written a lot of papers, <laughs> and I've published a couple papers as well for the African think tank I used to work with, and, you know, you're held to a high standard, and I, I remember when I was doing my grad school dissertation and doing some administrative law papers as well, I mean, you have to run it through, um, was it turnitin.com, I think it's called. Blackboard also has ones that look at it. And basically, you need to score under a certain amount, or it would be considered plagiarism. And my professors hounded it home. You use APA, they will mark you down if everything isn't cited correctly. And students are held to a pretty high standard at, at elite academic institutions. And... I think Tom Nichols in The Atlantic has a really good point that I just want to read here because Tom Nichols is a published academic. He taught at the Naval War College. He, you know, he was, he's a Russian expert. So he's published a lot is what I mean. And and he says that it's just unacceptable. And this is what he writes here. These new revelations about Gay's work seem to show a pattern that is too damning to ignore and transcends excuses about sloppiness or accidents. Very good point. He later writes, any scholar to say nothing of any student with this many problems in their work, should be in the world of professional trouble. And in the end, Gay's name is on her dissertation and her published papers. She, like every author, is ultimately responsible for the integrity of her work. He also says, Every academic knows that putting their name on a published work verifies that they have done their utmost to observe their obligations as scholars. Gail failed in those obligations. She engaged in academic misconduct. And, and it's a good point. And I just think that 
when students are put under so much pressure to do this correctly and at a time when academia is being sometimes rightfully and mainly wrongfully attacked and people are saying it's not worth it, it's too expensive, colleges just indoctrinate your kids, none of those things I think are true. But it's not a good look then when the bad faith actors do start digging up dirt on her and she actually has a lot because of her own character flaws. And so I think it's good she is gone. (coughs) Excuse me. Less so because of her hearing comments. I thought that was just chaos and she was not going to win no matter what she said. But plagiarism from the person who's supposed to be leading the institution and the symbol of the institution, no thank you. Adios. Anyways, might be a little bit shorter episode today just because life has been pretty busy and time, you know, just with the holidays and work and everything, time's been a little bit limited. That's why I'm doing these at night right now. But sometimes it's nice to do a recap on everything you've seen going on during the day and all that. But anyways, I, I do want to talk about Ukraine Excuse me, Ukraine just a little bit more because from what I'm seeing, ranging from Newsweek to Reuters to The Economist, the numbers are a little bit different depending on who has been reporting. But it looks like since November or late October into November, so kind of the last two months, it looks like Russia has lost somewhere between five and 10,000 troops, maybe even more than that, according to some reports. And it just looks like just mass, like the war is like for a while again, we had this kind of stalemate and it looks like that stalemate is over. And now we are seeing a lot more chaos and violence than before. And I I think what we're seeing here, and I hope we're not seeing this, but I worry we are, is that maybe there's some sort of a green light effect going on where Putin is deciding, why should I care about not attacking and destroying Ukrainian cities? Because clearly the West does not actually care about humanitarian causes when it's not for their own fight. And what I mean here is that, unfortunately... Israel's bombings in Gaza are showing that the U.S. will still support Israel and some of these other countries and not actually care about all the civilian deaths, but then also will turn around and say, Putin is a war criminal, look at all the civilians that are being killed. And I understand these conflicts are different, but as a propaganda narrative and for a lot of the global South, it's a way to see that, it's a way to describe basically that the United States is kind of hypocritical because In Ukraine, it's saying stop, kill civilians. Putin is indiscriminately killing women and children. But then the the United States is a bit more muted on what's going on in Israel. Now, of course, I do think that Biden's administration has been doing a lot behind the scenes to keep the Netanyahu regime from going just scorched earth, even though, I mean, they still are going fairly scorched earth. But I think Biden is doing more than we think behind the scenes. But I think Putin is saying, screw it. Let's just start destroying Ukrainian cities. Because, look, the West clearly has Hippocratical standards on human rights, so let's just go for it. And I say this is because it looks like Russia is ramping up just brutal attacks. And you have to wonder, once the spring comes, the ground gets soft. It's hard for tanks to move for a little bit. So right now is kind of the time to wreck some stuff. And you're seeing a lot of Russians dying. Russia's now relying on inmates to fight. But at the same time, Ukraine's military has lost also a bunch of people and is getting older and it's getting less qualified as conscription continues and they're getting desperate just to find more people to fight. Now, let's go through some of the things we've seen happen over the last few days. So Russia has just done a massive offensive over the last day, just firing missiles and drones on Kiev 
and Kharkiv in, in the Northeast. Killed at least five people just on Tuesday, injured dozens of others, destroying infrastructure. The Guardian notes here in quotes, the attacks caused widespread damage and hit power supplies. The Guardian also has a quote from Vitaly Klitichko, um, who is Kiev's mayor, and he said gas pipelines had been damaged in Kiev's main electricity district, while electricity and water had been cut off in several districts of the capital. And then, this is an interesting one, um, another article talks about how Russia said it accidentally bombed a village in its own southern region near Ukraine. The Russian agency said in a statement here in quotes, the Russian army said an abnormal discharge of aircraft ammunition occurred over the village of Petropavlovka in the Vornish region. There are no casualties. That's at least what they've said. Then also at the same time, you see Turkey saying it would not allow two British mine hunter ships to transit its waters en route to the Black Sea for use by Ukraine. We have to remember that Turkey is enforcing that international pact where it's kind of trying to block basically the passage of warring ships through the Bosporus. And this is kind of a chaotic situation as well. And then, of course, it's probably not surprising that Ukraine is now responding, scorched earth a little bit to Russia, for obvious reasons, because Russia's escalated, now Ukrainians are responding, and this is kind of something just to be expected. But anyways, the AP notes, and this happened, by the way, on December 30th, so a few days ago, it says in quotes, shelling in the center of the Russian Bordy city of Belgrad Saturday killed 21 people, including three children. The article also says a further 110 people were wounded in the strike, making it one of the deadliest attacks on Russian soil since the start of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine 22 months ago. Isn't that crazy? It's almost two years. But anyways, yeah, so we are seeing escalation all around. And this is also as the Ukrainian government is calling for more drones and other, other forms of weapons. And then this is also where we are actually seeing Lithuania and Latvia call for more air defense systems for Ukraine. And so this is a point where, as you guys know, I think from the beginning, we should have just given Ukraine everything it needed. Because slowly we've been giving Ukraine things we said we wouldn't give them. But by the time we give them, for example, tanks, you're like, maybe we should have done this six months ago. And so now we're at a point where the death and destruction is just atrocious. And I think the tides are turning, especially in the United States, where people are going, well, we need to find a way to have them come to some sort of peace deal, some sort of agreement. And obviously, I don't think that is good. I don't think that's good for the precedent that it sets. But there is there is a lot of death. And, the, you know, the numbers really do range. But Russia's losing a lot of children, a lot of boys. And Ukraine, obviously, women and children and soldiers as well. And so I do think that going into this year, unless there's some significant changes, we are going to see a lot more pressure for, I don't want to say a ceasefire, but some sort of discussion, some sort of forced talks between the two parties to see what they can do about this. And of course, then again, if you have someone like Trump get back into power, then I think you see it lean more towards letting Putin take what he wants. And of course, then you also do have to worry that maybe Putin says they'll meet, call off a ceasefire, and they, they want to take the Donbass or whatever, and then they just keep wanting to fight anyways. Because, again, it's really hard to trust the Russian government in this. But I do think that the, the bells are ringing for the West, especially the United States, 
and our allies to try to convince the Ukrainians and the Russians to meet. And I don't know if I really support that. I never really have. But it's just when you look at the numbers, you can see, I think, why some people are saying that. And again, I don't really have a strong stance on that deal. But of course, people are sick of seeing people dying. And I I think the thing here is that with what's happening in Gaza right now, there hasn't been as much of a focus on how bad things really are in Ukraine and also, well, in Russia. So that's going to do it for today. Like I said, a little bit shorter episode, but I just wanted to cover those things. I'll be back and uh, we'll cover a lot more. There's lots going on right now. But anyways, for now, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios. Adios.